0: You're listening to What Mad Universe on the HyperX Podcast Network. Check out all our shows on podcast.hyperx.com Content warning. Post-apocalypse, sexual assault, sexual indenture, and man-eating monsters. Action. Action, excitement, horror, romance, thrills, and chills, swords and sorcery, rockets and ray guns, a dizzying panoply of the strange and impossible from the darkest depths of the human imagination. What mad universe encompasses such tales as these? Turjan sighed and left the room. He mounted winding stone stairs, and at last came out on the roof of his castle Mere, high above the river Durna. In the west, the sun hung close to old earth. Ruby shafts, heavy and rich as wine, slanted past the gnarled boles of the archaic forest to lay on the turfed forest floor. The sun sank in accordance with the old ritual. Latter-day night fell across the forest. A soft, warm darkness came swiftly and Turjan stood pondering the death of his latest creature. He considered its many precursors. The thing-all-eyes, the boneless creature with the pulsing surface of its brain exposed, the beautiful female body whose intestines trailed out onto the nutrient solution like seeking fibrils, the inverted, inside-out creatures. Turjan sighed bleakly. His methods were at fault. A fundamental element was lacking from his synthesis, a matrix ordering the components of the pattern. As he sat gazing across the darkening land, memory took Turjan to a night of years before, when the sage had stood beside him. In ages gone, the sage had said, his eyes fixed on a low star, a thousand spells were known to sorcery, and the wizards affected their wills. Today, as Earth dies, a hundred spells remain to man's knowledge, and those have come to us through the ancient books but there is one called Pandaloon, who knows all spells, all the incantations, cantraps, runes, and thaumaturges that have ever wrenched and molded space. The Dying Earth by Jack Vance. Hello all, welcome once again to What Mad Universe. Uh, As always, I am Adam, with me is Philip. Hello. And uh, we are going to talk today about a series of stories uh, started in the 50s and ending in the 80s by Jack Vance. Uh, tremendously impactful on really more the fantasy genre, but to a certain extent fan- uh, sci-fi as well. And in fact, it's the era where uh, sci-fi and fantasy kind of cross over. We are looking today at The Dying Earth, and we'll be right back after these messages.
1: Awesome. We're the Spirit Hunters, and we're a show that treats Hunter Hunter and Yu Hakusho's author as the center of the universe. Some weeks, we do linguistic analysis. The Chinese meaning of this character is to smelt
0: or refine, but so the changed meaning in Japanese, it means to temper. Other times, we get absolutely smashed. So we take one shot every time. Yusuke uses the ray gun. One hour later. This is the least coherent episode.
1: Oh, Sarah, you should...
0: I think your apartment is haunted. <laughs> Check us out at the HyperX Podcast Network. Loot drop incoming. Get to the drop at HyperX.com for store-wide savings. HyperX is fighting the battle against inflation with deep discounts against all categories of HyperX gear. Head there quick, though. Once March ends, so does the madness. It's the HyperX Loot Drop 2 going on now at HyperX.com. And we're back. Yes. So, uh, yeah, today we're going to look at The Dying Earth by Jack Vance, which is uh, a series of... It's actually almost entirely uh, short stories, which were turned into fix-up novels. Uh, as we've said before, fix-up is when you take uh, short stories, usually published independently in, uh, in science fiction magazines, the pulps of the era, uh, that were kind of uh, combined and often heavily rewritten to uh, make a novel. Uh, the Dying Earth is uh, one book, sometimes known as Magirian the Magician, the first, uh, the first book, uh, that's a series of short stories, uh, not a novel at all. It's clearly a collection. Uh, the next two books are effectively novels, but they're very episodic because they are made up of short stories uh, If about this one character, Kujil, who's basically the hero for uh, most of the, the series for that reason. And then there's finally there's a, another uh, collection of stories about another character called uh, a sorcerer called Rialto the Marvelous. And uh, these are all stories set, as the title would imply, on a dying Earth, an Earth that is actually uh, apparently millions of years in the future, to the, uh, at the point where sun, uh, our sun has actually become uh, a red giant and is nearing extinction. And for that matter, the universe itself is kind of on its last legs. Uh, so it's very sort of melancholic uh, and nearing the end of its life. And, uh, I read the whole series. Phillips read the first, uh, collection, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, what did you think?
1: Um, uh, not what I was expecting. Uh, uh, I mean, you, you have a title called The Dying Earth and you think it's post-apocalyptic, which it is, but, um, it's like (laughs) post-post-apocalyptic.
0: Post-post-post-post-post-apocalyptic, um, yeah.
1: yeah. Yeah, it, like the um, the cover of the edition I have had like a space station on the cover, mm-hmm. uh, which uh, is not... I mean, I don't know if that comes up later, because I got collection of the whole series and I only read the first part, so I don't know yeah. if there's space stations later, because there are flying cars at one point, but... Uh,
0: In the um, very last story, they do go to outer space, but it there's very little here that is what we could reasonably call science fiction um it yeah. is it is very much the sort of well this is so far flung away and culture is de- de- uh, you know deteriorated and the secrets of technology have been lost so much that it's all basically magic and in fact there's very little attempt to make it like plausible as something that's scientific it's just magic essentially <laughs>
1: yeah there, there's a point where um uh, they mention an, uh, an ancient form of abstract lore called mathematics mm-hmm. so apparently the the concept of math has been lost
0: yeah that's right well i mean i i think they can still add 2 and 2 but it's kind of like yeah, yeah things like, like algebra I, I any, yeah yeah the it, it, it's actually sort of implied um to a degree that um magic has taken over like the the laws of physics have changed that allow thereby allowing uh magic to exist so Maybe it's not that weird that nobody knows science. They do occasionally run into um, scientific uh, relics and sort of ancient uh, technology, such as in the final story in the first collection, where they go to a city that is, you know, that was once this uh, scientific city and they have hover cars and things. And uh, a guy who's been cryogenically preserved and wakes up and has like a... Brain computer interface with the city. That's about the closest they come to real science fiction in this series. Um, but otherwise, uh, yeah, it's it's very much played out as a standard, well, not standard, but a fantasy series. Uh, that's 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 the angle from which they approach it. Um, it's it's set in what's called the 21st eon, uh, as they eventually label it, uh, which is you know literally an eon seems to be. Who knows? Thousands, millions of years, even. So, and and this is, you know, the very end of the world. Uh, but yeah, the, the um, apparently the um, the as you say, it's it's not post-apocalyptic properly speaking. Uh, it's a um, this is a this is a, a a genre, a subgenre that has been acknowledged that way as not really um, post-apocalyptic as we'd understand it. It's instead it's sort of like. Everything's been transformed to such a degree, and the world is sort of so far removed from anything we'd understand that it's it's basically like creating a new world uh, as an artist, as an author. And um, the uh, the the it's it's generally acknowledged as sort of a separate as a separate genre. There's little about conflict. It's I mean there probably were lots of conflicts in the history of this world, but it's not portrayed as like oh yeah there was the great nuclear war and that's why we're this way it's just like no it's just so much time has passed that cultures have mutated and you know the the life of life forms on earth are different probably and as they are in this story um but yeah it's not it's not it it doesn't sort of adhere to what we would think of as a standard post-apocalyptic novel um it's and it is interesting to me that you know when we talk it, like it's 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 generally called the dying earth subgenre uh but like it was not invented by Jack Vance by any means whatsoever uh it's been around long before him you you, you know what I'm talking about right like you you can think of some other examples of uh of of this kind of thing right
1: um not sure. Uh, the closest I uh, can think of is uh, Lord Dunstany's story, where right. a character uh, accidentally travels in time to the future, and it's like uh, the middle of London, but it's a, a meadow, and he talks to his shepherds, and there's a parody of Cockney speech mm-hmm. that he that the main character can't understand. Um, yep.
0: No, that's exactly what I was thinking of. Yes, the Lord, okay. the, the Idle Days on the Anne uh, story, and uh, yeah. And, uh, or Beyond the Fields, we know, I think. Uh, I can't remember if it's Idle Days on the End, that particular story. But yeah, where it's like far, far future. And that was a, uh, uh, I think we mentioned this um, in one of the other stories, like in one of the other episodes, that, that that's that's an odd preoccupation of the Victorians, just like the far, contemplating the far future, because it does pop up in um, H.G. Wells as well, in The Time Machine. Uh, they go to... I mean there's there's that weird interlude where they go to like the far future and there's a sphinx and weird like telekinetic white people not caucasians but like people who are like al- al- almost albinic and the and then uh, besides of course the main thrust of the time machine which is the morlocks and the Eloi uh that we're all familiar with um so like and there's that there's
1: a giant crab which uh or the giant crustacean creature in the time machine,
0: right? And it's it's it, and that's supposed to be thousands and thousands of years in the future. And it it's again like you just see the world is so radically different and it's completely cryptic and mysterious. Um, like you wouldn't you wouldn't relate. Really, and again, it's it's uh, I believe in uh, time machine. They specifically link it to the idea of like ter- terraforming the moon and that cracked open and that caused a cataclysm, but. I don't remember if that's actually played up as like a cause of everything or just something that did happen in between then and now. And again, it's just there's been so much time between our time and the, or H.G. Wells' time at the time and, um, and the future that just things have completely evolved in a different direction. Uh, which, so th- that's the emphasis in this subgenre. is not so much cataclysm leading to a, a transformation of society as just time has passed beyond all ken um apparently this is something that went back to the romantic movement um and i did like which would be the beginning of the 19th century once again we're gonna look at uh we talked to mary shelley she did do a book called the last man uh which is about a far future uh humanity is almost dead there's a been a plague and the main character is uh still alive so it has that you know omega man kind of uh aspect post-apocalyptic aspect but it's still just like again it's you can see the romantic uh capital r romantic obsession with like you know mankind's folly and and uh the the uh the what what would you say the um uh, the hubris of man uh and not in kind of a not just in a oh well we're going to destroy ourselves but in a respects on this world and it's gonna you know we're gonna be eventually you know we, we can't stand we all die and civilizations fall and crumble and and pass and that's kind of this melancholy tone uh apparently uh, also um byron wrote uh something called the darkness uh, which was a poem about earth after the sun went out um and uh, there's yeah a bunch of other things. A French writer named uh, Camille Flammarion, Flammarion, who I've heard of before. We made yeah, need to I've, look I've read
1: a book by him, but it wasn't in this genre. It was no. um, set on Mars and talked about uh, resurrection on different planets, hmm. like the soul migrating from the center of the the solar system outwards.
0: Yeah. There seems to have been, yeah, that again, this sort of mystic side to it. He was like. Sorry, late I, I don't mean to it.
1: interrupt, but all the stuff you said about the time machine, uh, I like. It's been a while since I read it, but I don't remember any of that stuff. I think, or the Sphinx was in it, but the stuff about the moon, I think you got from the from the two thousand two movie.
0: Okay, all right, okay, fair enough. I'm getting the movie mixed up with the, <laughs> with no, the not, with the actual book. So it it by does. By all
1: accounts, not a very good adaptation of
0: movie. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Um, uh, and, and well, so then that actually fits better with what I'm saying, where it's not, again, it's not a cataclysm. It's just the, you know, the, the pressure of time that forces things into new shapes and new civilizations. So fair point. Um, thank you for correcting me. <laughs> I, I wasn't, I wasn't totally sure about that, but I do, I, I might actually be thinking of the moon, uh, because of, I might be actually thinking of, um, First and Last Men, as well, which is another yeah. entry kind of in this genre, although it kind of does its own thing as well. Uh, but yeah, the idea of the. Time of these... Machine
1: does have uh, the sequence with, with the crustacean, as I mentioned, takes place in a future where the sun is huge and red, so that's probably. Right.
0: Yeah. I that's... mean, that,
1: that's what will happen eventually,
0: but I, I'm yes. just
1: saying an uh, obvious connection to uh, Dying Earth.
0: Yeah. Well, no. That's that's it. Like the genre is clearly well. That specific idea is is specific, obviously coming from science, and the idea that yes, the sun was going to eventually become a red giant, and eventually, uh, I'm not sure scientifically if that leads to a supernova or if they eventually just become. Uh, uh, white dwarfs or brown dwarfs or whatever they are and um, and implode. But yeah, they, just the idea that the sun has a finite lifespan and will eventually become this huge red thing um, is uh, is definitely something that's clearly haunted people's dreams ever since we figured it out, because it keeps popping up in literature, including this one. Um, also,
1: um, uh, William Hope Hodgson's um, uh, House on the Borderland has a segment where the, the protagonist sort of sees the universe laid out before him and sees time sort of sped up. And uh, I believe that also has a red sun at one point.
0: Right. Yeah. William Hope Hobson has been uh, specifically referenced as uh, an influence on these stories, Jack Vance and these stories. So, yeah. So it's definitely been a thing for why uh, H.P. Lovecraft uh, wrote something in that genre. Apparently I haven't read it, but it's called Tella the Seas. Um and it's that same idea of, like, one of the last humans in a, in a, in a world where everything's kind of dying and the soil's lost its fertility. Um, so, yeah, it, it was a common thing um, for a while. Uh, two other big influences uh, on this, I think, on Vance um, uh, is, uh, well, going back to the Dying Earth thing, uh, Clark Ashton Smith, uh, who is someone we'll probably have to tackle eventually because he was a significant pulp writer, uh, he was a writer. Well, we
1: have talked about uh, his Mars stories in in brief, but yeah,
0: right, yeah. He did he did do Mars stories, but he also did um, you know the the um, uh, Blavatskyan, if you like the the uh, Atlantis and you know pre human civilizations or pre
1: Hyperborea. Yeah, he had a yeah. Hyperborean cycle. He did Atlantis stories. He yeah. also had um a setting in the distant future where the yes. continents changed. I haven't read any of those, but I know They're-
0: of it. They're called the Zothique stories. Yes, that's specifically uh, why I brought them up, and those are the ones that uh, d- definitely had a um, uh, an influence on uh, Jack Vance, because they are again the same sort of far future, uh, kind of satirical, kind of uh, cynical about human nature, but somewhat weirdly lighthearted. Um, that's that's the thing that uh, basically impl- inspired um, Vance. Um, and then, uh, the, the editor, Sam Merwin, who was Jack Vance's editor, uh, when he originally wrote these stories in the forties, um, he's apparently, and I, 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 the whole time I was reading this, especially the Kujil segments, see, you wouldn't have noticed it from the short stories, but Kujil um, uh, has a lot in common with Jurgen. And um, when I read it, I was like, "This has a lot—a very James Branch Cabell feel." And apparently, uh, Sam Merwin confirmed that—that uh, that, yes, it was—he was influenced by James Branch Cabell. So there is a there is a linkage here. It, it is fascinating to me that Vance is a seems to have a like a tie to that sort of earlier pre World War II, more um, kind of louche and witty and, like, less, uh, very tongue-in-cheek, very ironic, um, um, not, well, not, I, maybe not ironic, but, like, um, less self-important style of fantasy, uh, that was often sort of satirical and, and, and sort of, uh, tweaking its, uh, tweaking its audience in a way, um, that I associate especially with Cabell. And, and also this sort of dreamlike style, uh, which does, which is dunsany uh, i would yeah. say yeah those are the two yeah, de- big
1: definitely uh, also um, world building by implication in a lot of faith cases just sort of mentioning that such and such exists in passing and uh, i mean i've i've only read a fraction of the series but i a lot of it doesn't come up again just sort of mm-hmm. you know establishing that all this stuff exists outside of the uh, anything that the readers ever going to know and that sort of um, puts things into your imagination and lets you sort of build the world with the author
0: we'll be right back after a word from our sponsors superhero stuff you should know go deeper than you've gone before into your favorite comic book films storylines and characters
1: superhero stuff you should know I'm part of the hyper x podcast network <laughs>
0: Just say that uh, Vance is very good at yeah evoking things with words. Uh, he has he uses a lot of very florid but well done but witty um, uh, turns of phrase, and in particular, he uses it for uh, spells, um, which uh, is one of the big uh, lasting legacies of this series. Um, you were mentioning that it was uh, like apparently Gary Gygax specifically mentioned the Dying Earth as a ref- as a a, uh yeah uh,
1: there's um when I was reading it there, there's a spell used repeatedly in the in the dying earth stories called the excellent prismatic spray um and prismatic spray is a spell in Dungeons and Dragons um which um uh I don't think it's as nearly as powerful as it is in, in the in the book like it like rips through people it's mm-hmm. more like a light light attack is it, I I I don't play I've only I've only played Wizards a few times, but I, I had a um, a game uh, with uh, where one of my um, friends often used prismatic spray, so um, I, I just recognized it from that. Um, yeah, apparently the the magic system um, sort of implied or portrayed in these books uh, directly inspired how magic works in Dungeons and Dragons. Not just the names of the spells, but just how you know, uh, say. Uh, a wizard has to um, uh, sort of uh, you uh, read spells in the morning, and they have certain spell slots, and they only have mm-hmm. so many that they can use. And if they use a spell, then they can't use it again until they, you know, refresh themselves with it.
0: Right. Um, it, well, it's specifically in this case, it's the spells are all written down in books from eons past, and you have to read the spell and memorize the syllables of the spell, but it literally actively goes out of your brain when you cast it. So, like, yeah. you, you won't remember it until you go back to the book and read it again. So, if you leave your so magicians in this and this is consistent all the way till the end you know magicians always have lavish castles with like servants and they and they stay there studying because if they go out uh they can only you know sort of preload all these spells in their brain and as they cast them they're going to go out of their brain one by one essentially
1: yeah but that's that's how uh, um magic usually works with uh, dungeons and dragons um depending on on the class of of magic users like i said i, I it's it's a little complicated playing magic users yes. uh, i find but um but just the, the slots idea that, and stuff but yeah. yeah like um uh wizards like, say um that's directly you know they, they have to read it in the morning and study it and um they can only you know fit so many
0: slots in yeah
1: it's yeah it's basically directly inspired um Magic
0: has bullets from a gun, basically, and you fire them, and then you've got to reload if you want to keep using Yeah, them, essentially. Uh, and
1: um, I found uh, uh, Gary Gygax uh, apparently did a whole uh, essay on um, the influence of Jack Vance, but I, I found a quote from here. Um, Aside from ideas and specific things, the very manner in which Jack Vance portrays a fantasy environment, the interaction of characters with that environment and with each other, is so captivating that whenever I could manage it, I attempted to include the feel he brings to his fantasy tales in the um Dungeons and Dragons game. My feeble ability uh likely managed to convey but little of this, but in all I do believe that um not a little of what fans consider the soul of the game stems from that attempt. Yeah. So yeah, that like it can't be overstated how much um um the way magic works in this um in these books influenced um Uh, Dungeons and Dragons, which in turn influenced fantasy fiction going forward, Mm -hmm. pretty much. Yeah. If not directly, then a a lot of it, you know, either arguing against Dungeons and Dragons or incorporating Mm -hmm. aspects of it, you know, it's just um, it it, I I wasn't expecting that. Like I said, I I didn't know what these books were about going in, so I, I wasn't expecting it to be such a huge influence on magic, specifically.
0: Yeah, in well, fantasy. that might actually tie into the idea that this is far, far future technology. Uh, like, just again, the fact that it's sort of something that you use up, and that it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, per, it's closer to technology here than maybe it has been in prior works of fiction, where magic is this sort of ineffable, numinous thing where you can't fully you know define it or expect it it just kind of exists around you and and often wizards are like it's it's fairly rare for wizards to be like main characters at a certain point in in the story because they're they're just these either helpers or villains um but this is just like this this suggests that there's a logic to everything that happens magic wise and i think that's uh that's the crucial uh crucial thing
1: uh, it mentions that um uh wizards or uh, magicians uh, don't actually really understand how these things work they just memorize them by rote there's like a hundred spells that's I think you read that at the top mm-hmm. there's about a hundred spells that exist and that's just because they've been written down so magicians just sort of memorize them um, or you know keep books and you know put that into their head to load up on them um, yeah yeah. So in that it's, sense, it's, it's not like they, they really understand what's going on like what it's not a matter of like peering into the secrets of the universe. They just have these mm-hmm. pre-written formulas.
0: Yeah. Finding old stuff. This happens in the final book too, Rialto. Like finding old items of ma- because in the in the in the final book they actually shift a little bit more to being more about like powerful magical items rather than spells that you can use. It's the same principle though. It's like lost, mysterious stuff that we can use and that gives us powers. They, they they have something called the Ioun stones, I O U N, which I think is actually a joke. It's I O U, right? <laughs> uh, that they that they like they can save up and use as uh, the sources of power. Um, and uh, they they uh, and the magicians, the the magicians, Rial, the Rialto stories, which is the in the fourth book. This was written in the eighties, by the way. So there's there's quite a long stretch of uh, time. Uh, sp- spanning these books, um, they're they're uh, they're ri- they're about how these band of magicians who are pretty explicitly shown to be yeah, a bunch of chuckleheads who are just constantly like backbiting each other and trying to to get one up on the other and they're they're an association of magicians. They don't have any serious like rivals or serious business to do. It's all about just you know who can uh, who can get the most stuff and who can who can uh, <laughs> who can show off and. and, they- and, and and learn they
1: demand the to be taken seriously. They
0: do demand to be taken <laughs> seriously. You're right. Um, no, that's that's an accurate depiction of what they're like. Um, and yeah, so it becomes a sort of... A, it, it's very it's very uh, satirical. I don't know what, if Vance was specifically... I, I kind of feel like he actually might have been taking a swipe at science fiction authors or the science fiction community uh, with these guys. I think that's actually sort of... Uh, I think that's what he was prodding at, uh, because he was apparently a, a regular in that um, in that field, as you would expect at that point. And I think it was just the idea of like they're all trying to one up each other and 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 accomplish things on their own. That the, you know they they lo- they brood in their castles doing wondrous things, but then they're always trying to sort of uh, they're always trying to g- gain more acclaim for for themselves, and and they they'll they'll. Pit, pit each other against themselves pit, pit themselves against each other to gain more uh, more, more valid stuff. And um, yeah, but yeah the way Vance uses like um, evokes stuff with words, let me give you some of the spell names that he has here. Uh, there's the, the spell of forlorn insistment which traps you underground for forever. Um, Lugwiller's dismal itch. Uh, Fandal's gyrator uh, Fandal being apparently this very powerful magician who wrote down a lot of the spells in the first place so he's kind of a he's a he's a crucial character in the lore uh, the excellent Pismatic spray as you said the spell of the omnipotent sphere the call of the violet cloud anyway they just they they evoke a lot it's really it's really cool uh, in addition to spells and then there's there's um you know the, occasionally he'll he'll use a turn of phrase that sort of brings out. Uh, brings something about the history of the world. Um, at one point, there's a, a woman. He there's a bit of time travel later on. The the, the sorcerers go back in time to to call up uh, people from the past. Uh, and there's a there's a woman whose whose name means dawn thing, uh, which is apparently because of how beautiful she is. Uh, there's also a uh, a binding ethos for the magicians called the Blue Principles, which are Inscribed on a pyramidal gem that projects them against uh, against a screen, and one of the magicians actually tries to steal and alter them to mess with uh, Rialto, actually, because of part of a, a a a a huge beef he has going on with Rialto. Um, <clears throat> and there's also creatures in these in this book. There's lots of weird. Uh, weird critters which, again, it's almost suggested they're the results of genetic engineering, but uh, I mean for all intents and purposes, they're just fairy tale monsters. Um, everywhere you go in this world, you're going to get hounded by crazy creatures that are trying to eat you and most of whom are sentient. Most of them can talk, uh, but they still try to eat you.
1: Uh, there's also tiny little green men who ride dragonflies who will give you information in exchange for salt.
0: Yeah, the, the Twick men, they're, those, they're, those guys are called. Yeah, so again, it's like, you could call it that there's a, you know, that there's a scientific explanation long lost to history that created all these, like, subgenres of, quote, humans or uplifted animals, but the end result is that they're effectively, like, there's elves, right? You know, like little, or little fairies or goblins living in the, in the and trolls and dragons and, I mean, not literally dragons, but, you know, monsters.
1: Yeah, it, it also mentions uh, demons um, are um, created from uh, man's um, uh, sort of inner, you know, darkness. So it's demons come from humanity rather than uh, being a, a separate thing. Um so uh, the, and that explains why demons uh, have the lusts of men. Um, basically, just because they they represent, uh, even though they don't have um, material bodies in the, in this world, they um, um, just reflect uh, on the the worst of humanity um, in in terms of their desires and their yeah, wants.
0: Yeah, this is something he starts talking about in the other books about the overworld and the underworld. Um, and the, they're yeah they're they're sort of extra dimensional question mark entities that as you say and I mean again for all intents and purposes it's like evoking spirits and demons uh, but you know there's a suggestion that they might be aliens but they also have as you say like they're they're explicitly said to be tied to humans and they're and they're they're desires and wants and pettiness uh in the rialto stories there's creatures called sandestins who are basically helper familiars basically uh helper spirits but they're very they're they're very begrudging they don't like help you obviously you cast spells and you you kind of bound bind them to do their bidding but they try to they try to stab you in the back every chance they get they don't they don't act like um they're particularly well constrained and uh, they'll, you know, and, and another magician, all they want is to get out from under your uh, control. And so you give them points of the uh, indenture points. Yeah. Um, so there, you know, he, Rialto, uh, Rialto gets into a huge uh, ongoing scuffle with his, uh, with his uh, helper. Uh, and he keeps trying to, like, take away points and give him points. And that's the only way he can compel him to do anything. And otherwise, he's always trying to, like, keep things hidden and not tell him that there's, you know, something trying to get him. Uh, but those are the sort of supernatural entities. Just We're just talking about, like, the things that lurk in the woods and try to eat you. Um, there's actually a list of them here in one of the Kujil stories. I'll, I'll read them here. The Gid, a hybrid of man, gargoyle, whorl, leaping insect. The diodand. Wolverine, Basilisk, Man. The Herb. Bear, Man, Lank, Lizard, and Demon. A Gru. And yes, a Gru is another thing they borrowed for uh, <laughs> Dungeons & Dragons, if I'm not mistaken. Um, man, Ocular Bat, the Unusual Hoon. I don't know what that means. Uh, Leucomorph, which just says unknown. And uh, a thing called a basil with a Z. Philinodor, Man, and question mark Wasp. Um... <laughs> Anyway, so there's, and there's later on, there's something called a pelgrane, which is, which can fly. Uh, It's kind of like a harpy, and at one point, um, Cujol is uh, hovering through the, uh, hovering through the, above the ground in a bed, and he's trying to pass a journey by sleeping, and a pelgrane sweeps down, and Says, hey, I got breakfast brought to me. That's great. He has to fight it off. Um, but yeah, anywhere you go in this world, you're going to get attacked by weird monsters. So that's another kind of Dungeons and Dragonsy thing. You know, you're going to have random encounters everywhere you go in this world. If you're not, out, if you're outside a city, it's just constantly, um, constantly weird creatures are are on you.
1: Yeah, and you mentioned magical items, and that that actually does come up uh, early in like uh, a character has a. Um a sword where the pommel glows like a flashlight, um, and uh, what was it? the expandable egg? It's sort of um, it's like mm-hmm. a tent, a magical uh, tent that protects you, and right. I guess shaped like an egg.
0: Expansible but, egg, I think. Expandable, yeah. E- yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's there's um, lots of yeah weird, and again it's and, and some...
1: again these aren't like uh, super like powerful uh, magic items. That again it's more like Dungeons and Dragons like low level magic items but they're common in the world so you know mm-hmm. you can buy them for a few coins and uh yeah
0: yeah that's something that comes up in the Kujil stories he just keeps running into like like there's sorcerers all over the place and the sorcerers in these world they are very petty in a way that is closer to dungeons and dragons wizards where there's just a wizard hanging around with your adventuring party instead of you know if you had magical powers <laughs> would you really just like hang around and drink in taverns and go on adventures or would you, you know, would you spend all your time, you know, trying to rule humanity or whatever? But these
1: I mean, the, it depends. Like, if there's lots of other wizards, then you can't, you know, it's harder to do that, so you know.
0: <laughs> well, sort of, but they don't, it, it's not so much that they feel like they're going to compete with each other, it's just they, they have one or two things and that's all they really care about, basically. And it, again, it's something they they dug out of a ruin. One of them explicitly in the Kujil stories explicitly says, yeah, I find this stuff. Actually, he's not even a wizard. He just has some magical artifacts and he's just, yeah, I I go to that old ruin and I dig up some cool stuff and look at what I got. In that case, it's um, a boot polish, which if you rub on your boot and then kick something, it, it causes it to defy gravity and the harder you kick it, the longer it stays up. (laughs) So, um, and that's something Kujil ends up stealing and using for himself for a large part of his adventure. Um, and he, he ends oh yeah, up having there, it,
1: there were uh, also boots of flight or something that, that allowed you to jump really far. Yeah, it's sort of like the seven-league boots in in, in folklore.
0: But anyway. right, yeah, the, that's that's that may have been the inspiration here as well, just the, the seven-league boots. But this is slightly different. And in fact, yeah. the guy who Kujil steals it from initially, he says, "Oh yeah, I've got a magic amulet." And Kujil sneaks in and steals his amulet, but he can't get it to work. Uh, and then it turns out it's the boot polish, not the amulet, that makes it work. <laughs> um, so that's so the guy was being, you know, s- sly about it for that exact reason. Um, I should talk about Kujil. Like I say, so he's the protagonist of the second and the third books, which were fix-up novels. And again, there was actually, um, I believe it was 66 uh, that the first Kujil novel was published, although it's, again, based on... A bunch of short stories so they were published uh i think throughout the 50s and 60s originally um the the very first stories that make up the first book were published uh when he was in uh fighting in world war ii actually or not published they were right written when he was pu- fighting in world war ii i think they were published later um and then collected into the dying earth in the 19th in 1950 specifically um and there, there's quite a large like he was writing this on and off for for many years like there's a big gap there's this and then the first the first book which is called eyes of the overworld or renamed Kujil the clever uh the second the second uh book which is the first Kujil novel um that was um 1966 which I think it was understandably part of the sort of reinterest in fantasy that that kicked in in the 60s um, and then the second Kujil novel didn't come along until the eighties. And I only just learned that, uh, somebody else wrote a sequel to that with Vance's blessing. Uh, but he's st- because this other guy was writing a sequel, he, uh, said, Oh, well I'm going to write a sequel to Kugel Uh, and, and the other one was published before him and he was fine with it. Uh, <laughs> which is really big of him basically. Um, and then the Rialto stories were also like the eighties, but yeah, the second Kugel story was the eighties, but at that point, um, but again, it, it had been published in a series of short stories, um, and, and turned into a fix-up novel. Um, the bo- the first Kujil book, is really remarkable. Like it, it, this is why I started thinking of uh, James Branch Cabell because he's very—it's an amoral rogue with just no conscience at all, and it's all just about how can I scam and manipulate myself, you know, into whatever I feel like. Uh, it starts with a guy uh, being. Um, well, he tries to scam a merchant, and the merchant kind of catches him and says, look, if you'll do me a favor, we'll forget about this. Go and uh, go and steal stuff from Yan Kanu, the, uh, the laughing magician who lives over there. And so he breaks into Yon Kanu's um, uh, castle and he gets caught. And so Yan Kanu puts him under a curse, which um, uh, basically tells him you have to go and retrieve something, which are the titular... Eyes of the Overworld, which are literally turn out to be rose-colored glasses. They're these eye cups that you put on your eyes, and it lets you see another world that's vastly better and and nicer than the one you're you're in. Like you're, you know, you're he, the people he fought, who eventually finds with these uh, these, these cusps are um, they live on a beach in like poverty, and they they eat fish and, and live in dismal shacks, but they have these cusps on their eyes so they see everything as a palace with you know and all the maidens are beautiful and everyone has wonderful clothing and it's all just a life is a dream and and basically the idea is that you work all your life in this uh in this far-flung miserable town village really in the middle of nowhere and um you feed the people like that's where they get food from and when you've reached a certain point in your life uh, you're given these cusps you can put on your eyes, usually because someone else has died, and uh, then you can just wallow in luxury or apparent luxury for the rest of your life. But it's, you know, you've got a it's, it's, yes, it's pretty much a parody of capitalism as far as I can tell, um, and the ability of being able to retire. Um, and Yonkanu sends him up to get one, and and um, Kujil basically. Uh, scams his way into getting one by claiming to be the heir to one of the uh, to one of the the, um, the sets of cusps. He puts one in. Once he's put one in, he's acclaimed as one of the village elders, even though he hadn't. Uh, he scammed his way in. And the other guy who said, "No, you pretended to be me," is like, "Yeah, well, on the one hand, you have a point, but on the other hand, Kujil is one of the village elders." It's like he just <laughs> put it in his eye, right? Like, and they're so bound up with. With the rules, it's like, yeah, once I'm halfway there, and he ends up getting one in one eye, and, and it actually gives him a huge, like, it almost, he, he's able to knock the guy for a loop by getting him to put one in, but open both his eyes at the same time, which causes, like, massive cognitive dissonance, and he falls over and collapses, and, it, and anyway, he, he does get out of there with these two uh, cusps. Um, Yonkanu, by the way, threw him like through the air all the way to the, the far end of the, the world, and he implanted him with a creature called Firx, which is a demonic entity that literally uh, lives inside him and wraps around his liver, and it's full of spikes, so it's to compel him to you know complete this quest and bring these uh, cusps home, and if he thinks about like straying or just sitting down and staying where he is, the the creature just starts to like wrap around him, basically. Well, um, like
1: the the Pillar Men's rings from JoJo's Bizarre Adventure Part Two.
0: Okay, uh, <laughs> could be. I don't know JoJo's Bizarre Adventure, but that sounds right. I've, I'm 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 very specifically not watching uh, anime these days because we're gonna. I might be doing a podcast with my friend Ing, uh, uh, in which I uh, in which I he explains anime to me, and I just nod and go, okay, that sounds weird. <laughs>
1: And I believe uh, you're starting with JoJo. So.
0: Yeah, we're starting with uh, no, we're starting with Lupin. But anyway, we'll, oh right, we'll, sorry, Blah. we'll get to JoJo pretty quickly, though. Yeah, <laughs> and it sounds very bizarre.
1: Um, and an adventure,
0: but, and 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 Jo, um, but <laughs> yeah, no, so so um, yeah, so Kujo's adventure is just like getting home, essentially, and he can't deviate from his course. Unfortunately, he's he's been given Yonkohu gives him something to help him to quote help him. He's of course, Young Connor doesn't like him at all because he was breaking into his place and trying to steal his stuff. So it's just a case of like, no, you're going to do this and you're going to like it. He gives him a, a magic amulet that allows him to gain sustenance from anything he can touch anything, and it turns into something he can eat, basically. And so the it turns first. Turns
1: him into matter eater, lad.
0: <laughs> Essentially, yes. But the <laughs> sorry, but he... oh, a lot of stupid <laughs> references to that. Sorry a... about that. No, that's exactly <laughs> what it is. And but then the. The 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 unfortunately the downside as he quickly learns as he touches it it doesn't make it taste good it doesn't make <laughs> it do anything but like become edible like he touches it to a stick of wood it's like the wood becomes chewable and it will give him the nourishment he needs but it still tastes like wood it does not taste good <laughs> so if he's if you know he it's only just to keep him from starving to death basically um, so he has a whole bunch of different adventures and again like I say it's very um, It's very uh, episodic. Uh, At one point, he gets... And so this is one of the things about this. And you see it a bit in those short stories, but it really comes through in the Kujil stories, which is this is a world where everyone is out for themselves and there's very little sort of kindness and compassion for other people. Like, Kujil's a complete rogue. He's completely out to you know, grab everything he can and stab everyone else in the back. But most other people aren't much better. He's just a little smarter than most people or people are delusional. Like the, the people in the, in the village with the red, uh, with the rose colored glasses. Um, he meets a number of women and they all end very badly to the point where it's actually a little uncomfortable. Um, there's a big moment significantly through halfway through the first book where he, um, you know, he's, he actually uh, took a, uh, a woman who called herself a princess uh, with out of the village with the rose-colored glasses, and um, she uh, wasn't a princess, of course. It, they all just believed, you know, they were royalty, but um, <clears throat> they need to get through a, a, a forest. There's a bunch of bandits, and um, they basically say, well, give us the woman, and you can uh, get through, and he basically goes, well, let's go along with it. We'll, we'll pass through the village, we'll forest, and then we'll... I'll get you free. I'll get us out of here. They get to the end of the forest and the bandits are like, okay, well we take the women now. And Kujal's like, yeah, okay, go ahead. And he leaves. And the woman's like literally just calling him out. And this is the first time he's been really heavily called out as just a complete monster. And she calls him that and he just doesn't seem to mind. And he wanders off. It's, it's really like, yeah, this, this guy is a huge (laughs) a-hole <laughs> but, like he is he is not a good person and not even like like jurgen's a, lo- a bit of a lovable rogue he does some bad stuff he kills a guy but you know he's kind of understand and even jurgen like starts his story by like i'm going to rescue my wife who i'd accidentally had banished because i had the i, I did a henny jo- a youngman joke and uh, <laughs> and kind of said take my wife please and she got she got taken away and now i'm like well i guess i uh, have to get her back which is, you know, kind of a, you know, he's he's a jerk, he's a rogue, but he does do the right thing. He does the manly thing, as they say. Kujil does not do the right thing, except, and I mean, he de- he never does the right thing. And even if uh, even if getting this rose-colored thing was the right thing, he's only doing it because he literally has a demon wrapped around his liver, impaling him at nonstop. Um, it's it's he's he's really just a just a pretty big monster. He leaves people to get murdered all the time he you know he'll if he sees somebody somebody has something he wants he'll like he'll do everything he can to to steal it and even if it means like abandoning them in the middle of the desert with no food or something you know he's he, he just does absolutely nothing redeemable throughout the entire book uh, i was expecting um you know oh the, the here's the big moment either he redeems himself or he faces his punishment well the punishment is that at the end of the book um he gets back to where yankanu is and Firks the reason Firks wants to get home is that its mate is kept in yankanu's um castle so um he needs to um you know he wants to get home to his mate that's why he's compelling uh uh kujal to get there and uh but he also mentions a, 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 uh, offhand that, or at some point it's mentioned offhand, that Furks will continue to grow and basically take over his whole body um, if he doesn't get home soon enough. Um, when he gets back to the castle, he actually finds that Yonkanu has been taken over by this other creature, uh, Firx's mate. Uh, and so he's actually able to uh, manipulate things so that he can... Um, he can get control of things. He does get rid of the creature and now he's in charge at Yonkanu's mansion and he puts Yonkanu Kanu in like a big glass jar basically and, and messes around and tries to learn his spells, but he doesn't do a great job. Uh, but that allows him to have power. Uh, the final moment is that he summons a demon who's going to sweep Yon Kanu away and deposit it back at the, at the North edge of the world where the, where the rose colored glasses are um, as punishment. And the demon ends up uh, grabbing Kuchel and sweeping him up. So the, the the novel ends with him literally back where he started and just abandoned on this strand, Shanglestone Strand, as it's called, uh, in the middle of nowhere. So that's his punishment, essentially, at the end of the first book, is that he just always, his his entire quest to get home was undone and he gets dumped back to where he started from. But then in the second book, he uh, finds his way home. He doesn't have Furks, he starts to find his way home. He does get, um, kind of, uh, worked over a lot, and arguably starts to sort of learn how it's bad that other people are taking advantage of him, um, but when he gets home he actually does defeat Yonkanu, who, uh, who, who was building a, <laughs> essentially a scale Sona. I know that sounds pretty weird, doesn't it? <laughs> um... There's a magical being made of scales uh, that Yan Kanu has been collecting all the scales for uh, and it creates a giant, essentially um, costume that he can wear. and he's missing one scale and uh, early on in the third book, uh, Kujil finds that scale. and so he wants to get it back because he knows Yon Kanu covets it and he sees that as an ability to you know uh, to get revenge on Yan Kanu again, uh, which he does. He eventually gets it home. He replaces the scale, but the demon that Yankanu's costume is wearing uh, is tries to reconstitute itself and Yankanu and the demon basically kill each other and, and he melts into the uh, and he falls into the fountain and the demon hates water, so he basically melts. Uh, and Kujil actually gets off scot free in that story. He ends up he ends up uh, you know, with a happy ending and he, he makes some friends, I guess, is his redeeming moment. But for all the bad stuff Kikujou did, he really doesn't deserve a happy ending and he gets one. <laughs> um, it's a bit weird anyway.
1: Yeah, there there's a sort of amoral uh uh feeling to a lot of the story like um not not quite the same cuz he does get a, a a bad ending, but um the first story, uh and the the wizard, right. his whole motivation is trying to rape a woman he saw. Mm-hmm. Um yeah. and uh it it ends up being um Uh, the whole thing was uh, a ploy by um, the uh, the wizard who he's kidnapped, um, who is trying to figure out how to um, make uh, life, and this other wizard who he's kidnapped has figured out how to make life that works. Um, And it turns out that this woman that uh, Nazarian's trying to uh, sexually assault is one of the creatures that um, the kidnapped wizard had made, and so this whole thing was... Um, a ploy to to get Mizerian, um vulnerable so he could be killed, and um, the the um, other wizard Tersian could be rescued. Right. Um, so that at least does end with the with the attempted rapist, you know, being killed. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, is
0: clearly like a very bad dude, and he gets his comeuppance. So that's more yeah. conventional. And Leanne yeah. as well. Leanne the. But the still, it's later. told
1: from his perspective, so yeah, um, yeah. It, it is uh, does. Even if it's not quite as, you know, amoral, mm-hmm. um, uh, universe at, at first, it, it is already, um, starting mm-hmm. out, uh, presenting a world with characters who are real pieces of crap.
0: Yeah, uh, there, there's, yeah, there's a lot of, you know, like, cruel beings in the, even at the beginning of the story. And like I say, there's a bit more of a justice is done to the, the first, uh, set of stories.
1: There's also, uh, uh, Saeus, uh, a uh, a woman, um, yeah, her story actually involves her meeting Estar, who's a, an actually decent dude who believes in, you know, uh, sanctity of, of life and you know helping people and um, and he's you know explicitly portrayed as an outlier in this world. Mm-hmm. Um, which again, it's it's a dying earth. Everybody's uh, yeah. in it for themselves at this point. Uh, I guess that's.
0: Yeah, that that's is def- one
1: way you could interpret it.
0: Yeah, no, that that's definitely the intent, and it's it's sort of like it's sort of a decadent uh, world, like the civil the cultures are all decadent, the people are all decadent. It's all just sort of like everyone scrabbling for purchase. So it's and it, it, it would so it'd be pretty bleak, except that you know the stories have a lot of wit to them, and they're they're weirdly lighthearted. Uh, like I say, the story of Kugel is very funny. Like he keeps getting into very funny scrapes. Um, putting aside the fact that, you know, like he's such a, he's such a monster. Um, <laughs> like, so it's, it's, you have to kind of put aside your, you know, your, uh, possible repellent repellents. Uh, the, the first story, I actually like the first set of stories the best. Um, they do have that sort of like they they have satisfying, you know, turns and, and, and ends and stuff like yep. that. Um, I did like that a lot. Uh, we're almost, we're getting, uh, We've been going for a while. Uh, I did want to uh, start to head towards wrapping it up. Um, There's one other major element here that um, had a huge impact on uh, science fiction and fantasy, which is that these books directly uh, inspired uh, the books of the new earth, uh, the books of the new sun, uh, which, uh, have you heard of those, Phil?
1: No, I don't think so.
0: Oh, okay. Uh, But Gene Wolfe, uh, he wrote the book of the new sun. Um, and it's, um, or the books of the New Sun, there's there's four of them. It's a four-part trilogy, uh, as Douglas Adams would have said, um, and it's, it's very much in exactly the same setting. It's a, you know, multi-million year future. Sun has gone red. It's dying out. There's been so much weird stuff that's happened in between. Uh, Earth is basically, there's less explicit what we'd call magic. It is much more f- fixated on the idea of, like, Te- technology that gets dug up from time to time and does weird stuff. Uh, Earth Humans have more explicitly been to the stars and come back and been and come back a few times so that there's, like, alien creatures running around on Earth and so on. Um, and it's, again, it's, it's kind of a brutal uh, world. Uh, the main character of those books, Severian, is actually a torturer. Um, and it's sort of he learns humanity as the story unfolds and he learns redemption. Uh, but it is... Um, Maybe a little more on the serious side, but it has some of the same wry tone as this. Um, the, the The book of the New Sun it, it's it's definitely like better from any kind of literary perspective, and in fact, it's often held up as sort of the the you know like if you're going to point to a literary work in science fiction fantasy genre, you know that's one of the ones to point to. It's it's very. It's very cool. It's very, very dense. It's got lots of ideas. It's, uh, it's got a lot of like a very unpredict a, a very um, unreliable narrator and a very uh, like lots unsaid that you have to sort of piece together uh, to the point where a lot of people say you have to reread the books twice. But it is essentially a big love letter to the Dying Earth story- stories because again, it's it's all from that. Uh, I don't think we're ever going to do the the Book of the New Sun for this podcast. Uh, and the reason I say that is that there's already an entire podcast about the Book <laughs> of the New Sun uh, called Alzebo Soup uh, with Philip Armstrong and Andrew Metzroth. Uh, it's really good. I do recommend you check it out uh, if you want to but um, and it goes through it like um, it goes through it chapter by chapter and he's breaking down everything and trying to unveil like what's going on in these stories and but yeah, it, in in uh, it, we had I've had a few people mention we're doing the Dying Earth, and they're saying, "Oh yeah, that's the basis for the Book of the New Sun." So uh, in that regard, uh, these you know these are kind of a, uh, a keystone for another element of science fiction. And and as I say, it's it's really interesting to the degree to which this ended up being a um, a bit of a, a, a part of a continuity between like the old school of sci fi fantasy and more modern stuff i didn't realize the, how much of a linkage there was um as i said i, di- I didn't I, I you don't expect to see any kind of remnants of james branch cabell uh after or even dunsany to a certain degree after like world war ii era but this is that's definitely this 100 percent. it's it's bringing that into the modern era of sci-fi mm-hmm. fantasy um yeah um uh,
1: i didn't mention this when i was talking about um the magic system, but uh, apparently in role-playing game circles, the this sort of magic system is actually just called Vancian magic.
0: Oh, like in the sense of like loading up on uh, yeah, spells, yeah, kind of thing. And, yeah,
1: and and it's it. I mean, it makes sense for games because you know you, yeah. you can't have an a, you know omnipotent uh, main character uh, or you know an omnipotent uh, uh, player character because mm-hmm. um, you know what's the point. Um. So yeah, it makes a lot of sense for games. So it, it's um, um, sort of interesting that it it originated in in fiction.
0: Yeah. Well, yeah. It's uh, Vance was a um, and the, you see this again in the in the the books. It keeps happening. A, a thing that keeps happening in the books is that like, uh, especially the Kujil stories again, which make up fifty percent of the stories. Um, like he he'll try to get an advantage, and he'll just have to talk his way and like rules lawyer's way out of every every <laughs> situation that he gets into um and um like it's like i said like he'll he'll find the, well, he grabs hold of the one cusp he gets it and then he becomes officially a village elder so he can talk and even though he obviously didn't was lying they have to take him seriously and then then he'll argue well if you do this i can do this and if you drop the you throw me the idol i'll throw you the whip like there's a lot of that kind of negotiation happening throughout the books usually by 2 you know parties that are not, you know that that are acting in bad faith essentially and trying to get a, a, a leg up on one another. Um, but uh, Vance apparently also wrote um, mystery stories. Uh, he was a, as well as uh, sci fi and fantasy, and um, you can sort of see that in this. Like you you can see he looks at the logistics of things and how you know how did that happen well there was this and how did this chain of causality happen again in this case it's like how does a con artist manage to talk his way out of trouble when he should rightfully be you know lynched by a mob for doing something but um the um it's You can see the kind of logic that goes into detective stories coming from this. Mm-hmm. He just works, he just inverts it to, like, instead of, oh, what happened? How did this guy get murdered? This happened, this happened. It's more like, how can I murder this guy? You know, <laughs> like, it's that kind of thing, so.
1: Oh, uh, I was just, uh, realized the, uh, the village elder, uh, joke is, uh, pretty much identical to one Futurama did, obviously later with, um, where he, uh, uh, Wernstrom said Wernstrom uh, said he would uh, save them in re- in return for getting tenure. And then when he was agreed to get tenure, he just sort of walked away. And they said, "You should do something." I'd love to, but he's got tenure. <laughs>
0: <laughs> exactly. Yep. <laughs> yep. pretty sure the sun's about to flicker out any minute now so we'll say goodbye once more we are your roguish and self-serving hosts adam prosser and philip rice and we evoke the call to violet cloud to sweep us all up off into the sky uh this whole project was operated by a loyal Sandestin engineer and producer alex ross who might be earning a few adventure points for this we haven't decided yet uh our theme song was composed on Zitherbird's wings and sung with the thousand crystal throats of the pandemoniac orchestra by jack Burick. Uh, just a reminder, we both have a Patreon, which helps pay for hosting costs and whatnot. Uh, if you subscribe to either of us, you can listen to this podcast early, every time, as well as getting bonus material, cut footage, and illustrations and comics, among other things. Uh, just go to Patreon and search for Philip Rice, 1L, or Adam Prosser, 2S's, or neversleepsnetwork.com slash series slash what-mad-universe for the links. Uh, you can also follow us on Twitter at Podcast or Prankster36. For me, or Spear Hafok with an F, A for Philip, uh, and I also want to plug uh, uh, HeroesLive.tv, uh, which is a uh, website that has both video uh, web series, indie movies, and comics. I've become the comics editor. Uh, we're adding new material there every day. Um, if you subscribe, you can basically read a whole bunch of comics for free, including Philip's own comic, The Apex Society. Uh, as well as stuff from our friends Ing uh, and Charlotte uh, and my own work of course um, you can also actually purchase the comics individually through the, the, uh, the store Heroes Live if you don't want to subscribe uh, but uh, please check us out uh, we're we're growing fast we just need a few more subscribers and some cool stuff's gonna happen so if you go to HeroesLive.tv please sign up and uh, subscribe to see some cool comics Uh That's it for tonight. Uh, Don't let the endless void hit you on the way out.